Well, tonight we will welcome the new year. How many of you are doing a, a New York New Year's Eve? Some of you? I told our family maybe we could do a new deli <laughs> New Year's Eve. We're in Delhi, so maybe New Delhi would be. Uh, but they, they weren't quite going for that. I think that would be quite a bit earlier for us. But it is hard to imagine that 2024 is so close. But that's the ceaseless and ever-accelerating passage of time, especially as you get older. It just seems to be yesterday that it was New Year's Eve for 2023. And it's appropriate that as the days have, have reached their shortest duration and as the cold has set in as much as it does in the Central Valley, that we should examine the last 12 months and think about this coming year and so in that spirit, I would like my last message of 2023 before we return to the book of Acts to be a challenge for a new year's resolution. I want to inspire you this morning to resolve to be a people who will take seriously the words that we read in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40. Would you stand with me as we read our passage today? Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Let us be a people to whom this applies and to which we give a hearty amen. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, as we read your word today and as we think about it and what it really implies for us, I pray that we would be teachable, that we would hear what your spirit says to us through these pages here in Matthew's gospel. And, and Father, help us to be a people that really desire to be citizens of your kingdom, ambassadors for the gospel, and members of your family. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I do quote this passage often from Matthew 22. Jesus' words were spoken in response to someone asking him which of the commandments were the greatest. And if you think through the Ten Commandments, it would be hard to pick the single one that was maybe most important. Might be, you shall have no other gods before me, but then there's also, you shall not make for yourself an idol. And as you go through, every single one of the ten is obviously exceptionally important. They were the ten principles and laws that God thought were foundational to establish Israel as a nation. So you can picture the Pharisees and the scribes and lawyers just waiting to hear Jesus' answer so they could trap him in some way. That was the intent at this point in Jesus' ministry for just about any question he was asked. Interestingly, he doesn't quote directly any of the Ten Commandments. Instead, what he does is summarize them into two overarching principles. The first four commandments that God gave Moses all dealt with how Israel was to worship God. They were to have no other gods. They were not to make any idols. They were not to represent the Lord falsely. And they were to keep the Sabbath as holy and set apart to him. And so a perfect summary of those first four was given by Jesus. As you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if you love the Lord with everything that you have, you will naturally keep all four of those first commandments. 
And then the second summary principle that Jesus gave, which was nearly as important as the first, was a, a condensing of the last six. When we love our neighbor as ourselves, we will not murder, will not commit adultery, will not steal, will not bear false witness and covet, etc. And these two summaries are intertwined because we can only truly love our neighbor as ourselves when we are fully focused on the Lord first. If we didn't love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, we would naturally love ourselves with all of that focus. But the Bible says that those who love themselves foremost have little room to love others, love anything else for that matter. So the question this morning is, what is your greatest love? What is your greatest love? But don't answer that question too quickly. I'd really like for you to think about it throughout this entire morning. If you were to log your time for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, what things would begin to reveal themselves as the focus of your heart, mind, and soul? Would it be work? Would it be marriage or parenting? Would it be entertainment? Would it be a hobby? If you were to ask your spouse or your parent or your child or your best friend, coworker, what three things seem to capture your greatest focus and attention, what would they say? Would the Lord even make the list of the top three? And what about your children? What do they most desire? What are you training them to desire? We must realize that as parents that we are God's agents in our families. And just as God has entrusted us to be stewards of his material resources, so he has entrusted us to be shepherds of his people. And understanding that helps you understand, if you are a parent, that you are fulfilling this all-important commission. And since I'm mentioning parenting for a moment, let me just say a few additional things that that agenda that I'm speaking of for your parenting is fully defined by the Lord. Ephesians 6.4, one of many that, that kind of speak to that topic, says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but what? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That means more than anything else, more than any academic subject of life, or any skill that you fathers and mothers are to train your children in the instruction of the Lord. And that must be according to God's priorities. Priorities which God, give God preeminence and place others' interests above our own. Right? The very thing that Jesus is saying to us in Matthew 20, 2 is the same thing that we are to be uh, imitating and emulating not only in our example, but also in our instruction and training to our children. They are to be loving the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and loving others as themselves. And that duty doesn't disappear on Sunday morning. The choices that we make every single day of the week are pivotal, even determinative for our growth, for our children's growth, our family's growth. And Wendy and I have periodically had to take stock of what is most important in our daily lives as individuals, as spouses, and as parents. And having raised four older children who are now married with families and being most of the way done with our final two, we've had many years to take stock, usually at the end of each December, 
but really we, we do this almost every week, and that is ask what are our goals and what are our priorities? What did we learn? Do our children love God more today than they did last week or a year ago? Do we love God more? Have we been out of balance? Have we been emphasizing the wrong things? And just one more thought about parenting. We don't want to raise just well-mannered children who are lovers of themselves, right? Children who have the perfect skills to make a million dollars, but who will turn around and use that money and success on self-indulgence and self-exaltation. We don't want to just raise children who are well-educated or talented, and yet in a conversation with an adult or peer would rather die than talk about Christ. That is not what we want to, to be training or raising. So my first challenge this morning is this. Is your personal life, is your marriage, is your child training focused on becoming more like Christ and aware of his kingdom? There is no more important or fundamental question for a Christian. Everything that you do must be focused on that end. And that means that your daily calendar planning, your to-do lists, your conversations at the dinner table, your employment choices, your schooling, all should be anchored on the scriptures, God's kingdom, and your calling in Christ. And so I asked you earlier to be introspective about your values and priorities and asked what, what top three words or phrases would people use to describe you? Husbands, how would your wives describe you? And I'll say that, how would they write in in an anonymous letter that was sealed that you didn't get to read? Right? How would they describe you? Would the three words or phrases be things like driven, smart, hardworking? And notice I, I chose words that were not things like argumentative, self-obsessed, and deceptive. I didn't say those types of, of words. But they, they could have been possibilities. Instead, I chose words that in themselves are positive. Driven can be positive. Smart can be positive. Hardworking can be positive. But if they're not anchored on Christ, here's my point, they can be just as condemning as the so-called negative terms. Isn't a driven individual who's driven all about the wrong things just as bad as an argumentative individual? In fact, I'd suggest that such a person can be in an even worse situation because the world values people who strive for worldly success, and that person will be praised by society for being driven. And it may be even harder to reach with the gospel. But I do come back to how would others describe you, and undoubtedly most of us would love to have others say, especially those that see us the most, they would love to have us be described as godly. But if we never speak of the Lord consistently or live out his principles on a regular, very visible basis such that it is the foundation of our life, why would someone use that to describe us as the most descriptive term? In other words, what are the dominant subjects of your conversations? Your speech tells a lot about 
what's going on in your heart because the Bible says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What are the dominant directions of the decisions that you're making? They reveal your values and priorities. Are the decisions just what will advance me in my career? Are they just what will make us the most money and affect our budget? If there was a body camera attached to your clothing and you didn't know about it, and it followed you around wherever you went, recording the words spoken, text typed, actions taken, would people see a person whose heart, mind, and soul were focused most on Christ and then on others? And friends, I don't want to come across as negative this morning. I really don't. But I do know how easy it is to settle into a pattern of sleep and breakfast, work or schooling, lunch, work or schooling, play, dinner, perhaps more work or schooling for some of you or an extracurricular event like debate or sports or something, then bed, all to start over again and the kingdom of God can hardly be mentioned in a day. And I'm not going to let those of you off the hook who have the Bible as part of your daily homeschool curriculum or have verses stenciled on your walls at home or have a devotion around dinner at night. I say that because we have those things too. So I don't want to accept myself out of all of this. At the end of the day, every day, does everything contribute in some way towards glorifying the Lord or are the very things that we have stenciled on our walls like condemning statements to us? I think sometimes about that, how so many of the things that we have on our walls are, are things about how our home is a home of grace, how our family is seated around in unity and, and eating. And sometimes, you know, they can be a condemning statement if there's arguing going on around the table, right? And if you have a bunch of things that are not contributing to glorifying the God and making it first in your life, why are they a part of your day? Or how can you modify them to start glorifying God? Now, at this point, some of you might be asking, but does everything matter in this way? What about teaching my child math or watching a movie at night with my spouse or learning to play a musical instrument or participating in a recreational sport? What about those? It's fair enough. And let me just clarify that everything that we do should have a purpose to bring glory to God as a parent. Everything that I tell my child or direct them to should have the purpose of capturing their hearts for Christ I know that's hard to think about, but you need to get into a, a consistent pattern of making it more something that you think about because that's the only thing that's going to lead you to maybe change long-established patterns and habits. If you're a homeschooling parent, for example, definitely you teach math, but don't teach math in a vacuum as if math is a secular subject that has nothing to do with God. God created the universe. There should be in our instruction an awe and a wonder of God. And the things that we teach should lead our children to have a greater respect for and, and marvel at God and what he's done with physical laws of the universe. Math and science help explain that. 
physics, chemistry, everything's just this amazing window into a, a God who has done so many things. And if your child asks you, why do I have to learn math? And what am I going to do with it, right? That's a question we all asked growing up, and, and you're hearing it now with your children. Perhaps the answer is not just going to be, well, because this is something we learn, or because everyone else learns math, or because many careers use math. Instead, we learn math because God made all things. And he has given us the ability to understand better what he is doing when we learn things like math. If you're going to learn a musical instrument, should you not use that instrument in some way to worship God and edify his people? It leads you to ask questions like, am I developing a skill to the extent that maybe someday I can use it in the church? Or am I playing worshipful music at home? I'll suggest a parallel. If I were to ask you why we learn to read, wouldn't an inadequate answer be... An answer like, so I can survive in this world? Or so I can get a better job? Or so I can great, read that great world literature that's out there? Isn't the best answer so that we can one day read and understand and apply with wisdom God's word? And if that's the best answer, how prominent is God's word in your daily reading? In other words, if you simply learn to read... Or if you have a far-off idealistic goal of one day reading the Bible with greater understanding, but you never actually include the Bible in your daily activity, maybe you've gotten to 30 years old or more, and you're not even quite sure if you've read through the Bible once entirely in your life. Why do we think that one day a light will suddenly go on and flip on and we'll, we'll suddenly love God's Word? And have it be a prominent part of our reading. And then free time events. Those, those are difficult. And I think we come up with all kinds of justifications for why we do the things that we do with what we consider our free time. For sports, we live socialization and friendship with our peers. For entertainment, we talk about being exhausted and brain dead after having spent the entire day working. And I'm not discouraging from having free time or downtime or relaxation time or whatever we call it, but I am encouraging all of us, myself included, to remember that we must be intentional in our lives. If you watch a movie on a particular evening, would it not be best to make sure that the movie glorifies the Lord? That it encourages relationships with others as opposed to being just an opportunity to check out. And should we not see the fruit of our invested time and in whatever it is that we do being greater humility, more consistent conversation about Christ, greater love for others, right? Whatever we're spending and investing our time, we should see a harvest of righteousness being produced. And again, what I'm saying is that there's no more important thing in life than to love the Lord your God with all, he says, your heart, mind, and soul. And that means that for those that do actually take up larger amounts or consistent amounts of your time, 
it's important to make sure that the benefit that you're seeing from them, the harvest that you're seeing from them is greater than the cost. So entertainment, sports, hobbies, extracurricular activities, they can easily become idols. And I encourage you to ask these hard questions regularly, not just on New Year's Eve. I'll give you an example in this, this area. Perhaps you are a parent whose child participates in a year-round sport and when the decision to commit to that sport first occurred, you weighed the costs versus the benefits. You reasoned that he or she would exercise and that they would make friends, that they would learn to be more of a team player. They would learn to cooperate with others. And then you fast forward three years. Maybe that same child three years later has become the star of the team. Perhaps what you're seeing in him or her is not Christ-like, but Actually, a full-fledged pride coming out. You're sometimes wincing at what you hear them say to their peers or the way you've seen them act. And what may have started out as a yes to a particular event may become a no. And perhaps some of the reasons aren't just because what you're seeing in your child, but what you're seeing in the family. Has the cost to participate in that particular event made it so that you can rarely eat dinner as a family anymore? As the schedule for practices and, and games, especially as you have multiple ages of children, starting to make it so that not only is it difficult to have these concentrated times together, but your conversation has begun to move away from the kingdom and more towards being centered on that extracurricular activity. Again, I'm trying to pull through examples that we have faced. There was a time with our older children where we were moving towards year-round soccer and, and uh, had different age groups, and we were just seeing this beginning to pull us away from the things that we thought were important. And this isn't just about parenting. This is also about marriage. It's about your own personal life, whether you are married or not. Has some activity or hobby or pattern of behavior become an idol for you? Is it distracting you from kingdom life and loving the Lord? The call to follow Christ is a call to die to self. How else could you be expected to love your God with all your heart and everything you are unless you do die to yourself? Not only that, but as a result of following Christ, you are to love as others as much as whatever you love for yourself And it's because of that that Jesus once, it's not in this passage, said to his disciples, count the cost of following me. Count the cost, because as you begin to realize what he's asking, you realize, wait a second, this, this could and does result in a substantial, life-changing shift of focus. Is there anything that needs in your life to be added, removed, or changed? You see, as Christ begins to live in you, everything does by itself, by its own nature, begin to change. Your mind changes. You begin to realize who God is, what he has done for you, how much you need him for what he asks of you. Your heart's desires begin to change. You, you respond to those 
those concepts like where your heart is, there your treasure will be. You start wanting to invest in those types of treasures, the spiritual heavenly treasures, rather than just accumulating earthly treasures, the things of this earth that you once loved and were so important to you. Some of them you even now hate. You hate that they ever had that kind of a dominant hold of you. And how in having made them an idol in your life that affected your behavior, it affected your relationships and your choices. Your soul, your will begins to change. You go where Jesus says. You give what Jesus commands. You sacrifice whatever it takes to spend your life in uncompromising obedience to his word. And your very reason for living Changes. I think about Paul. You know, as I've said a few months ago, I think about Paul and how he was asked whether he would rather remain or, or be with the Lord. And he said, well, what would be your answer? Hopefully it would be Paul's answer. I, I'd rather be with the Lord. Heartbeat. His, his heart, his focus, his mind had begun had been at that point in his life so changed that, of course, to be with the Lord in eternity would be his preference rather than having to continue to struggle against the, the war against sin and, and the various persecutions he was facing. And yet he said, what? But it is better for you that I should remain. And you see in that moment the heart of Matthew 22, don't you? I would rather be with the Lord because he is the love of my life. He is my heart's consumption. But I also love others as myself and it's better for you, more edifying for you that I should remain. And therefore I shall so that I can go out and I can build a a large nest egg and a retirement benefits and I can, you know, watch movies every night. That's not what he says, right? If those two things were Paul's focus, what would be the natural implication of what he's doing with his daily time? How can I expand God's kingdom and how can I continue to be edifying to you? Because if that's why I'm remaining, am I actually living out my life's purpose? Am I others-oriented in my, my daily decisions and in my thought processes? You see, if you look at the major non-Christian religions of the world, you will realize they all share one common denominator. In every religion, a teacher or a series of teachers prescribes particular paths to follow in order to honor God or different gods or experience whatever is in that particular belief system, salvation. Islam has the five pillars of the Quran. Buddhism has the four noble truths. And someone might say, well, Christianity, it has its Ten Commandments. Isn't that the same thing? But it's not. While Jesus does say that those who love him will obey him, different than every other world religion, Christianity actually says that following rules and observing those regulations will not save you. Instead, Jesus makes it clear 
that in reality we can't perfectly obey those rules, even though that's the standard. And his primary purpose was not to instruct his disciples into how to better fit into that mold, into that religious system, but rather to invite them into a covenantal relationship with him so that he, as we've seen in the last few weeks, would serve them, help them to desire to do his will and to do the impossible. And that's why Jesus doesn't say, follow this way and path to eternal life. I'll see you at the other side. Instead, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Find rest for your souls in me. Find joy for your heart from me. Love me with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and you will find yourself naturally desiring, even able to live a righteous life. So friends, we are not called to simply believe certain points, observe practices. We are ultimately to cling to the person of Christ as life itself. That's what Matthew 22 means. He should be the center and cornerstone of our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. If you thought that when you read that part where love love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, it meant that you had to memorize Deuteronomy? No. It means that you have to love God. That the person of the Lord, Jesus Christ, should be your thought as you wake up in the morning. As you make that decision, what will please Him? As you talk to your children, let me tell you about him. But we often miss that, don't we? And in so many ways, we relegate Christianity to just another choice in a cafeteria, a line of worldviews. We let Christianity become a set of practices. You know, the Hindus, they bathe in the Ganges River. Well, Christians go to church. And... Muslims, they worship on Fridays. Christians worship on Sundays. Buddhists, they recite mantras. Well, Christians, they sing hymns. Sikhs, they share their possessions with the poor. Well, Christians read their Bibles and give to the needy. It would be easy to just treat Christianity as a worldview of choice for the average American. We are Americans, therefore, fundamentally, we are a Protestant country or a Catholic country or whatever we're going to say. And as I said, behavior and practice is not what make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is that you, a weary man or woman burdened with the yoke of your idolatry and sin, come to Jesus to find rest for your soul. And if it's, that's true, then the worst thing that you would do would be to turn Christianity into a list of truths to believe, things to do, and boxes to check off as if what's going to happen tonight and tomorrow as a result of the sermon is that you sit down and you make a set of new to-do list items of check boxes that are going to be the new behaviors and practices. I'm not saying don't make fundamental changes. 
what I'm saying, again, is that it's impossible to separate true change and true faith from a passion for Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards lived during a time in which the church was divided over those who prioritized emotion, over truth, and those who prioritized truth over emotion. And in response, Edwards claimed, you can't, you can't, this is a false dilemma. You can't have one without the other, he said. In fact, he specifically wrote, our external delights, our ambitions, reputation, our relationships, for all these things, our desires are eager. Our appetites strong. Our love warm and our zeal ardent. He's describing the average person in his time, same in our time. He's saying, for our, the things that we delight in externally and our ambitions and what we've set for our goals, our, especially our reputation and our relationships, while we are very good about having strong appetites and ardent zeal or passion. He says, our hearts are tender and sensitive when it comes to these things, easily moved, deeply impressed, greatly engaged. We're depressed at our losses, excited about our successes and prosperity. But when it comes to spiritual matters, how dull we feel in comparison. He says, we can sit and hear of the infinite height and depth and length and breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus, of his giving his infinitely dear son, and yet be unmoved. If we are going to be emotional about anything, he concludes, shouldn't it be our spiritual lives? Is anything more inspiring, more exciting, more lovable and desirable in heaven and or earth than Christ? The gospel touches our hearts in its most tender part, shaking us deeply to the core. He finishes with saying we should be utterly humbled that we are not more emotionally affected than we are by the truth. I just echo what he said. In Christ, your creator has come to you to satisfy your needs in a way that nothing in this world that you consume your time with can possibly ever do. And so I just challenge you and exhort you just as I do myself today. Are you continually reminding yourself of the fact that your deepest need is not for something, but for someone? And that someone is Jesus Christ. Is your ultimate satisfaction found in the gifts you've been given? Or is it in the giver who has provided them? We may be willing to make a decision for Christ in order to save our skins for eternity. But the truth be told, too many of us really like the ways of the world and want our cake and eat it too, so to speak. We want to consider ourselves Christians but then we want to live our lives on our own terms. Because deep down, the pleasures and praise and possessions of this world, at least in this moment, seem far more enticing. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. And what the Bible says, which I find is really important, 
The Bible knows the struggle that we go through. And the Bible doesn't try to entice us with comments like, you know, this is the best thing. It says, I have given you a fountain of life. Right? Rivers of true pleasure and joy. The Bible knows what tempts us away from putting Jesus first, and that is what we think is true joy, true happiness, true pleasure, etc. And God comes back and says, you don't understand. Things that are pleasing you, they're like black and white compared to the full color of God's reality. So what do you want most? Don't you want the same attitude as David in Psalm 27, one thing I've desired of the Lord, and that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. Now, what if you thought about my earlier questions and you didn't like the answers that you came up with, and you were starting to say, especially if it was kind of the parent-child questions, is it too late? Never. The best time to start is always now. And I know that it can be crippling to find yourself in a situation with years of wrong priorities. Maybe it's in a marriage that has taken years to fester into this simmering bitterness and discontentment that you face. Maybe it's an older child who's had years to kind of cement bad behaviors and self-concept. And I know, like I say, how crippling that is and how you feel like you can't come out of a hole. But what's the choice? The choice is either remain as you are and perpetuate a wrong thing, give up and wallow either in self-pity or discontentment or bitterness, or... Start slowly plodding in the right direction. Confessing sin, being open to the Holy Spirit, praying. The Holy Spirit can take our imperfect efforts, can use them for His glory. And if your concerns are with regard to not having set the right priorities and values for your children, let me at least comfort you with knowing that it's not too late for them either. Start now and realize that values are as much caught as they are taught, which means that your children are watching you. And just as it is true that you can teach all the right things and yet undermine them by living yourself a poor model and a hypocrite to what you teach with, with your words, it is also true in the opposite direction that you can, having had taught or instructed many of the wrong priorities and values, begin to show by a changed life what God can do in you. Your children need to see that what you're teaching them about is life itself. Do not underestimate the power of a changed parent, of a father or a mother who realizes that Jesus and his kingdom is everything and how that must change. And maybe it may seem odd and awkward and strange, maybe even foolish, 
to your family members, but it is that time, which is now. You are a disciple of Jesus. And everything that he did was a result of pleasing his Father and doing his Father's will and was being led by the Spirit. And that should be us as well. So here's my challenge for you on this last day before a new year. When you wake up tomorrow and get dressed, do it for the glory of God. When you eat breakfast, do it to the glory of God. When you go to work in the afternoon, in the morning, in the evening, whatever it is, your time schedule it is, do it for the glory of God. Are you willing to resolve that moving forward from this moment that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul and others as yourself and are you willing to do whatever it takes to make your chief aim in life to glorify God and then to enjoy Him forever. I pray that that will be the thought and the challenge of your heart as we end this year. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for the challenge of your word and and really how it calls us to ask what is most important, what is most valuable. And I do pray for all of the people here as well as for myself that what is truly most valuable to us is our God and his kingdom. Not whatever small kingdoms we've been building. And even our relationships have to be defined in the light of that kingdom. What we're doing with our marriages. How we're training and instructing our children. What we do with our time. Even the jobs that we do for work. Everything must be done with excellence for your glory. And Lord, if we find that that's not been true at all of our lives or even in part, I pray that we would have the conviction today to say some things need to change and a willingness to do that because we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.